Welcome to another edition of Perspectives from Rothschild Co. My name is Laura Kindlin, and for today's edition, I'm joined by Kevin Gardiner, our global investment strategist. So Kevin, typically when we record for this podcast, we discuss macroeconomics and what's been affecting the financial markets recently, which is always very fascinating. We've never talked about you, however, and today we will change that. And I'm very much looking forward to another fascinating conversation. So Kevin, the term iconic may be a tad overused, but you've held the position of global investment strategist at Rothschild for over nine years and have indeed become quite iconic. They refer to you as the London Oracle in the Zurich office. That's, that's scary. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't know that. It's very flattering. <laughs> I didn't know that. I'm not sure I wanted to know that. <laughs> A serious question, though. You studied economics at the London School of Economics and went on to pursue a master's degree in economics at Cambridge University. Was it always evident to you that you wanted to become an economist? No, it wasn't. Uh, so I did an international baccalaureate back in the days when it wasn't a particularly well-known exam. And I went on from that to become, I thought, an electrical engineer. And when I arrived at university, and at my sandwich course with what was uh, what went on to become British Aerospace, I found out that electrical engineering uh, was not just a bit of maths, which I liked, it was entirely maths, and it was too much maths. And I had become quite interested in other subjects, and I enjoyed writing, so I felt I should try and find something that was a nice mix of hopefully the literary and uh, the numerate, and economics fitted the bill. And I chose economics, uh, ha having taken a year off. Uh, I did two degrees. I worked as an economist at the Bank of England, and I've been doing economics ever since. So I've clearly got uh, limited imagination, I guess. You already mentioned that you started your career at the Bank of England. How do you think your early experiences in the central bank have shaped your views on monetary policy and economic governance? Oh, hugely, I would say, um, in that I worked alongside some really very smart people, um, possibly even more smart people per square meter than is the case here at Rothschild. Um, some really smart people who knew everything that there was to be known about economic theory, but perhaps didn't always appreciate how best to put that into practice. Um, and even, even then, I felt that there was perhaps a, a, too much preoccupation with modeling the economy and describing it mathematically and not enough interest, perhaps, in making the big judgment calls, which I think ultimately is, is what monetary policy is all about. But I enjoyed my time there hugely. I learned loads. And in particular, I hope I was taught how to write reasonably, unambiguously and clearly, because people who published the Bank of England's quarterly bulletin back in the day, the editors then were absolutely fiendish. Uh, in terms of not tolerating sloppy grammar or ambiguity of any sort. And I would hope some of that has spilt over. And um, do you believe that being a proficient economist is comparable to a fine wine, improving with age? <laughs> That's a great question. I am aware, though, that even the finest wine can sometimes be corked. So let's move on. <laughs> Many regard the origins of economics to date back to 1776, when Adam Smith published an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations, also recognized as the wealth of nations. In this book, Smith delved into the mystery of why certain nations thrive economically while others lag behind. So fast forward 247 years, and economists are still fine-tuning their responses to this fundamental question. 
What's your take on this? That's a great point. And I think they will be forever. And um, because what we've learned, I think, is that there are no um, there are no overarching drivers of economic growth. I, I think that said, I think one thing going right the way back to Smith, as you as you did, I think one thing that you can say, and it sounds almost too obvious to mention, but it's hugely important, maybe because it's so so obvious, we don't talk about it all the time, but it's, it's a little bit like economic gravity. The societies which have made people best off and which also paradoxically have been least unfair turn out to be in those societies in which they've, they've left plenty of room for markets to shape the distribution of resources or the allocation of resources alongside politicians. So politicians and economies generally have gone most wrong when they've tried to override markets right the way across the board. It's understandable that they might want to step in from time to time when, mar when markets fail or when outcomes become too unfair. But occasionally in the last century or so, we've seen uh, some countries go, going so far down that road that they've given markets very little room for manoeuvre. And that inevitably makes people people worse off. And we've seen it relatively recently in countries such as Venezuela, for example, an obvious lesson being overlooked. Uh, beyond that, to return to the your starting point, there is no neat single factor that drives drives growth. In another life, I'm a part-time advisor to a group of local authorities in Southeast Wales. And there we are, we have been given 500 million pounds by the taxpayer to try to make the local economy grow faster, more sustainably, and more fairly. And if I've contributed positively to that project, I would like to think that it's been in my advice, which has been to keep a very open mind about how best to spend the money, not to come to this with any preconceptions, but to look perhaps for established centres of excellence and reinforce those rather than have some sort of macro template that we think things must conform to. Hope that makes sense. It does. Thanks for sharing. Turning to your job today. Um, at the center of our mosaic investment strategy is the asset allocation meeting or committee, which you chair. Could you elaborate for our listeners on how we go about making decisions when it comes to allocating our assets? Well, I would like to think most importantly, I would like to think the most important element is that it's very collegiate. So I think we have five voting members on the committee and we have a very frank discussion amongst those five voting members. I would like to think as chair and Carlos as our CIO, I would like to think that between us, we really do encourage a very frank and open exchange of ideas. Then I would say, um, in terms of the discussions themselves, if there is a pattern to them, often or usually I might summarize what's happened since the previous meeting. Um, we would, one of my colleagues would then summarize how uh, some of the economic data and charts have been moving, how portfolios have performed in the top-down context, One of our PMs would talk about how they performed in the bottom-up context. But then we would go around the table and take a range of views on a couple of topics that we think are probably uppermost that day. And we may have decided before the meeting what questions would be most likely. It may be something that comes to us during the meeting itself. But we go around the table and usually we're quite careful uh, for Carlos and myself to speak last rather than first because we don't want our views to influence the wider discussion. 
And I hope that that's helped to ensure that the discussion is as open as it can be. So it's very collegiate, um, full and frank exchange of views. Um, and we usually try to keep it uh, keep it reasonably efficient as well. We know that macroeconomics is an open-ended uh, game. We can talk about it for as long as there is as long as there are hours in the day. So I, I hope we keep the discussion reasonably focused. And in the last year or so, what we've been grappling with mostly has just been whether uh, we should, as we eventually did, return to an overweight position in stocks and how we should finance that. Should it be by being still underweight in bonds or should we be underweight in cash instead? Those are the sorts of things we've been discussing. But also we've had a lot of discussions about Things like you mentioned artificial intelligence um, in stock market terms. Should we be overweight those sectors? Uh, should we be thinking about cyclical sectors? Should we continue to be underweight defensive sectors? Is it time at last to go overweight bond duration? We think it is. That's a recent change we've made. You already mentioned what was in focus in 2023. With what thoughts are you going into 2024 then? Well, even, even though this doesn't necessarily have an impact on the economy and on uh, markets, it would be it's difficult not to worry a little bit about the geopolitical situation, because if things were to escalate either in mid the Middle East or Ukraine, if uh, China were to act over Taiwan, if we were to see another idiosyncratic US president elected, these things could start to matter. So one is a little bit um, shaken by the turn of events that's uh, occurred geopolitically. And the, the last 18 months or so, almost two years now, has effectively seen, for me, the only significant reversal in an otherwise lifelong tendency that I've observed towards the world becoming more stable and more peaceful rather than vice versa. And the you know, Russia's attack on Ukraine Uh, was quite a quite a seismic event in 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 that sense. So we go into next year worrying a little bit about geopolitics, keeping an eye on it, hoping that it will remain contained, hoping that peace will break out. And beyond that, for me, the the issue in the business cycle and the business cycle itself is not that daunting. I don't think that there needs to be a significant downturn. I think people usually worry far too much about economies, which most of the time look after themselves. Um, so the issue is going to be, when exactly do interest rates start falling? Do they need to fall a great deal? Do they need to fall just a little? Um, what does that mean for the relative positioning of stocks and bonds? So I think that's probably going to be, seems likely to be the main macro driver for next year. Alongside that, I guess, can AI continue to lead stock markets higher? Does it have to be the US along with AI, which leads the global stock market higher? Or is it time for other sectors and other regions, perhaps, to have their day in the sun? So turning from the business Kevin to the private Kevin, <laughs> I understand that in 1994, during your time as an economist at Morgan Stanley, you wrote a report on the Irish economy in which you referred to Ireland as the Celtic Tiger to describe the country during its prosperous years from 1995 to 2007. How did you come up with this term and did you expect it to endure? The We came up with that phrase at the last minute, the report was about to go out and my section of the report, which is what the title applied to, was going to be Ireland growing quite quickly with not much inflation. 
And even an economist could see that that probably wasn't the most eye-catching title. We had an Irish editor in-house, and I said, uh, I asked them if they felt calling it a Celtic tiger would be seen as potentially offensive by an Irish audience. And he said, no, it would be fine. And at the time, the tiger economies in Southeast Asia were doing very well. I'm a Celt from Wales, so calling it a Celtic tiger seemed to be uh, a good idea. And nothing I've ever written since or ever will write again has resonated with uh, the public debate to the extent that that has. So much so that several other people suggested that they'd invented the phrase, even though it's documented and Wikipedia'd um, accu ac accurately. And I've, uh, as I say, it became an absolute cliche everywhere. I worried at one point in the noughties whether it was becoming counterproductive because people were using it as a shortcut for thinking about the Irish economy. And the underlying substance is very good. And I'm very proud of the call because Ireland, even now, is the fastest growing economy in the Western world. And it grows fast not because of trickery to do with taxation, because of some very straightforward um, drivers to do with inward investment, flexible, educated workforce, etc. And, and, and so on. So um, it went on to become a very widespread phrase. And I have gone so far as to apologize in Irish media. Uh, television, radio, print, for my crime of cultural vandalism, which effectively is how, it's, how it's, uh, it might have turned out. And I even apologised at one point to the Tizak, Ireland's prime minister. Um, uh, I was introduced to him as the man who coined the phrase the Celtic tiger, and I won't reply in, in exact terms as to what he said, but it was to the effect of, I thought we'd forgotten that one. <laughs> So overall, yeah, it was cheesy, but I'm quite proud of the call. And the principles, which are that the supply side of the economy matters hugely, and you shouldn't be dogmatic about looking, you know, about where it is that you look for economic growth, is something that I still I still apply those lessons, I think, on a day-to-day -day basis and in my work in Southeast Wales. And now we have the apology also on the podcast, right? So we do. It's, so it's out there. So it's there. <laughs> Again. Um, Kevin, I know you love music. You play a couple of instruments and you're trustee of the London Music Fund. What does music give you? Another, another language which, and hearing other people express themselves, I, I could never express myself as uh, clearly and as fully as the great musicians do, but hearing the great musicians express themselves in music, um, they put into Uh, they they translate emotion into that language in a way that words can never can never capture. So it opens your horizons massively to uh, the things which human consciousness is capable of. I was quite taken with the what I learned a few years back, which is that when they sent one of the spacecraft out to out to explore the outer universe, I think it was Voyager, the first Voyager spacecraft, they sent along with it some illustrations of what mankind is capable of doing. And alongside a lot of fancy scientific stuff, I think they included a couple of pieces of music. I think there was some bark in there. There was also a US blues track and a bit of jazz, I think. And I think uh, that uh, those people chose accurately. I think music is a reflection of what we do best. And I only wish I could play it myself more adequately than I do. I'm a passable blues guitarist. <laughs> I'm a very, very slow piano player. <laughs> well, maybe next year you can play something to our listeners on the I podcast. don't think the world is ready. 
So lastly, if there was one piece of advice you could give to your younger self, what would it be? Speak more slowly and more clearly. <laughs> That's a great one. Kevin, you've got a great brain and a great pen. And uh, you've provided our colleagues, clients and other followers of the markets with insights for a long time. So please keep doing that. That's very kind. <laughs> Thanks very much. It's been great chatting. Thanks so much. If you want to find out more about the topics discussed in this episode, please go on www.rothschildandco.com forward slash insights. Thank you for listening. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co for information purposes only, and any reliance on the information provided in it is done at your own risk. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation, or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund, or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort, and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the fairness or accuracy of it. The value of investments, and the income from them, can go down as well as up, and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance.